Hello, everybody. I'm joined by some awesome security friends for an experiment that we're going to be doing where we hang out with each other, possibly enjoy a drink and talk about some fun security stuff. So who are the friends? We're going to introduce each one. Some is going to introduce somebody else. I'm going to start with my buddy, Will. So Will, I met him when he joined Netflix. We joined on the same day. Uh, Will was my work wife for many years until he abandoned me. He said he was going to move back to Texas and he joined Capital One, which is really good timing because that was when Capital One had a giant breach. So Will came to the right place at the right time. Uh, Will is now living happily in Texas. Uh, Will and I co-presented one of my favorite talks of all time uh, that I've actually given. Uh, we called the Pizza Talk, where we basically explain a whole bunch of Netflix cool stuff that we were building, but we used only pizza metaphors. And now Will has joined the ranks of the old people in getting married, uh, where I got to attend his wedding last week, which is very fun. Thanks, Travis. Not only did you attend, but you were part of the wedding. I also think uh, we met before Netflix over bourbon at the OWASP leadership meetup. Oh, yeah. I forgot I was and, part of the wedding. And thankfully, I, I I don't know, thankfully or not, I guess, have you just tied me to the Capital One breach? Yeah, you? basically, I thought it was your fault, wasn't it? Yeah, is, yeah, is now where it shook out? Yeah. Is this an admittance? No, yeah. definitely not. Well, it was not my fault. Well, it's a good thing uh, it's not recorded. Yeah. Uh, anyway, thanks for that awesome intro, Travis. Uh, hopefully I can live up to the expectations for the next one. But uh, I'd like to introduce Anna. If you don't know Anna, she's an amazing person, friend, and hopefully colleague one day. We keep talking about it, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, her background speaks for itself, but currently she runs security at uh, security engineering, excuse me, at Netflix. I'm super stoked to be on this podcast with her and Travis and Leaf. And I hope this isn't an experiment and it's something that we keep doing, but we we can talk about that later. We'll keep doing it. Uh, yeah. Will, you could have worked with Anna if you hadn't left Netflix. This is a, like a simple solution to this. Yeah, this is one of those things where we've, we've discussed this many times already. And she's like, you know, I came to Netflix. I was going to work with you. And I was like, well, you didn't tell me you were coming. So I left. The same could be said of you, Travis. You literally left the day before she got there. Yes. This is such a bummer. <laughs> and there has been so many opportunities to work together and it's just never really worked out. So I guess everybody just has to return to me, right? If, if my company doesn't work, I will come begging for a job. <laughs> You're all welcome. Uh, not making any hiring decisions on this call, obviously. Caveat, disclaimer. Thank you, Will. That was a wonderful introduction. I'd like to introduce Leif. Leif Treisler. Uh, has arguably the best hair in all of security. This it's is not an, it's yeah. not up for debate. Non-negotiable. It, non-negotiable, no objections whatsoever. Uh, he's also an infinite source of hot takes. Uh, most recently, I think he's argued that security engineers needs to shift right and learn some real software development. I'm just going to let that land as is. Uh, IRL, I think he's a senior e engineering manager at Twilio Segment, and he's focused on building uh, security features for, you know, the world. He wears legit Hawaiian shirts, like basically every day. Yeah. Thanks for the, the intro. Uh, I guess the only one left is Travis, and I didn't get informed before this that I was going to have to intro somebody else, but um, Surprise. Travis has a, you know, a very, very serious background. He started out with some of the legacy security companies like Symantec, and then just worked his way and became more and more modern somehow. Um, I think really what uh, jettisoned his career into the career we know today is Netflix. Uh, worked on a lot of great open source tools, presented at some events, was kind of just like riding on Will's coattails. Basically. And then... <laughs> 
led uh, ProdSec at Databricks. And somewhere along the way at Netflix, I met Travis and he uh, conned me into helping with the Bay Area OWASP chapter. And uh, we had a lot of fun running uh, the chapter for uh, a handful of years with some other great folks like Tad. And um, now he's the co-founder and CEO of Resourcely. I love uh, bamboozling folks into your work. It was honestly a really good experience. Like I got to meet a lot of great people and I, I feel like we put on some really high quality events, especially once we figured out that you unfortunately just have to say no to small startups and just host events at like Uber and Lyft and Google and like the places that just have all the AV dialed in, they have really good food. Like they already provide security. Like it was, it was definitely the secret to making the events good was just partner with big companies that just know how to put on events and have a bunch of money. It's so funny because I think the first time I met Travis was on a OWASP event hosted at like the small startup I was at in San Francisco. And we definitely, we definitely did not know at all how to run events or had any AV and like, it was, it was not great. You'll have a cool like stadium seating, right? Yeah. Or something. Oh yeah. Like lending club or something. I think they're the one, one of the ones that has like the big, like, like stadium seating like that. But yeah, I mean, we host an event at segment when we were like a 200 person company and it was like, I ordered the food people from segment security were like bringing people up and down the elevators. Like all of that stuff, like was just volunteers from our company, which was like kind of fun in its own way, but I much prefer to run events where I can just chill and do nothing once the event actually happens and just let the uh, corporate security and like the team that just does events just do everything so I can actually talk to people and not have to worry about a bunch of stuff. 100%. Okay. So in this non-experiment, we're, we're going with this. So generally, we're going to talk about some stuff. We've got some news stories uh, that I want spicy takes on. Uh, I, want, I want your spiciest take. I want arguments. So if no, just like universal agreements on this, we've got to come up with something that, uh, something that somebody doesn't agree with. That's Another disclaimer, then I will play the devil's advocate and not just, you know, represent my own perspectives here Perfect. sometimes yeah. maybe, or maybe they're just also just my true feelings. You'll I never know myself. Yeah. What do you got for us, Leaf? Cool. So the, uh, the first story we're going to talk about, um, is in the ransomware space. Um, you know, ransomware has kind of been plaguing, uh, companies the last probably like decade. Uh, there's been some really famous ransomwares over the last like couple of years. I feel like the colonial pipeline was probably the biggest one I can remember in the last few years. Um, but there's another one that was running around earlier this year called deadbolt, and it was used to target network attacks, attached storage devices and impacted NAS devices uh, would get an automated message asking for 50 Bitcoin, uh, which is quite a lot. Um, you know, even now, uh, quite a lot, uh, a lot more earlier this year, but um, send 50 Bitcoin and you'd get a decryption key. That would be a really tough spot to be in, especially if you're like a small or medium sized business and like you have a bunch of just, I don't know, you're like some random tax consulting company or something and you just like lost all of your clients info. But thankfully, Dutch police got a tip from responders.nu and they worked with this group to actually obtain the majority of the decryption keys and made them publicly available, which is awesome for the victims of this. And um, they used a trick where the Dutch police would send a payment. Uh, The decryption key was actually in the metadata of the Bitcoin transaction. And then the police would cancel the transaction. And so they'd get the keys, but they didn't actually have to send any money. 
And on top of this just being a really cool story on its own, I thought it was pretty cool that they were able to cooperate between security researchers and multiple uh, law enforcement agencies to facilitate getting these people their information back. This reminds me a lot of uh, of Hackback. Uh, which is like this concept. I don't know if it's still popular, but a few years ago, if somebody's attacking you, that you just go and basically attack them back. There's been stories about where, you know, governments will go and basically like disclose all of the other government's tools and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love this kind of stuff. I think if you, if you make it clear to these ransom gangs that at least they have to like up their game, they can't do ridiculous stuff where they're sending like the key into metadata. They have to have like actual infrastructure. Um, the more that you can make it where people have to think about it, I think the better. I'd be so scared if I was them. It's like our whole operation just got popped. And it's like, we obviously have a ton of scrutiny from law enforcement on us. Like I would be really, really scared. I used to run honeypots with Andrew Morris of Gray Noise. And like, it was amazing how insecure the, like frame, the, the servers of the attackers were. I remember finding, we'd find like um, command log, FTP logins and you go to the FTP server and it's just like open and it has everything from the builders to the, the like the malware to everything. But I'm still hung up on like, how do you cancel a Bitcoin transaction? Yeah. I didn't like under, to, like I didn't totally understand that part either, but like, I love that they figured out a way to, to, that's awesome to do this. I think 50 Bitcoin. If you send me all of the malware and then when you send it to me, I'll cancel that Bitcoin. Yeah. I love the stories of like the U S government, like hacking a, you know, a crime gang. And it's like, they hack the like security cameras, like where the people are. And it's like, yeah, that would be not a good spot to be in for sure. What is the, what is the NSA, uh, chief Rob Joyce? Yeah. It's just like how I love how spicy he is on Twitter. He's, he's dropping some pretty good memes and stuff lately. I have clearly missed something here. So. Oh yeah. There's pretty sweet memes. I feel like government agencies have definitely gotten spicier over the last like two years. Like there's definitely some, they've definitely taken some uh, insight from like the Wendy's Twitter account. <laughs> That's my favorite Twitter. Them yeah, and the Duolingo TikTok. But I do think that like the hackback is a good hiring strategy for government agencies, right? Like if you want to go do, or like for the police, like if you want to go do, these types of, of activities are a little bit more exciting perhaps than, you know, the sort of uh, very square. Uh, Sit there in the windows room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Ryanair. That's another good TikTok. It's so good. They, they basically, you know, Ryanair is kind of like low budge uh, airline carrier and they just make fun of themselves all the time. They are, they are so low budget that when they, for an April's Fool's joke a couple of years ago, suggested that they would um, charge for toilet breaks, uh, people believed them. <laughs> I would believe it. That's awesome. I've flown right there. Yeah. It's, it's the worst. I had done it. I So growing up in Europe, I had to do it many times. And I vowed when I started making any of my own money to never do it again. Like ever. It's like the European spirit. It's worse yeah. than spirit. When I was in Europe, I was definitely team EasyJet though. EasyJet, like is that the uh, orange one? Yeah, it's like a little bit better, but you just don't feel like they hate you the whole time. Hey, shout out to their security team though. I used to work with them. They were a customer of ours way back when, uh, and in an in an old life, and they were they were just the sweetest. So, <laughs> I feel like air, airline security has it really hard. There's just so much kind of decrepit infrastructure around 
And it's hard to rotate those things in the same way that banking infrastructure is so old and crappy. It's just like, if you take it down for even an hour, then you have major impacts. So they're just like crutching along this stuff from the seventies. I think airlines is even harder in my opinion, because it's like, you have a lot of physical hardware. That's just like a thing that keeps people alive. I mean, the airplanes still have those like smoking ashtrays built into them, even though there's no smoking signs everywhere and you haven't been able to smoke on anything forever. They still have it built in. Oh, I remember uh, Hugo Teso did some security research on like hacking airplanes from the ground like 15 years ago. It felt a little bit like security theater, but it was very cool back then. And I think still probably quite relevant. I don't think anyone has updated anything to mitigate any of that. This is fine. <laughs> hacking an air, airline from the ground yeah it sounds totally totally fine totally yeah like you should at least have to be on the plane like there should be some risk right like i don't want to be on the plane that you're hacking from the ground i don't want to be on the plane at all that you're hacking but it's like i if you were going to hack my plane i'd prefer you be on it so there's like you're taking the same risk but also modern television uh, has taught me that you have to travel at the same speed as the plane if you're hacking it from the ground. So like if you're in a car and going right. the same speed as the plane. You've got to reach the RJ45 cable coming out yeah. while you're in the Corvette. <laughs> like the Scorpion episode. That is exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> There's so much trashing, trashy TV hacking. Oh, I love those shows. They're the best. But I mean, what is the what is the okay. best trash TV hacking scene though? Like, is it two two people on the same it's, keyboard yeah, or fish? No, two people on the same keyboard for sure. Oh no, wait, that's in CIS. That's pair programming. CIS, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Abby and McGee on the keyboard in CIS. That was the yeah. best. That's horrible. The thing okay. with hacking though is it's like there isn't a good way to depict <clears throat> it. Like, I mean, I think Mr. Robot did a pretty good job. But overall, it's like, it's slow and not that exciting. Like, this is what I always tell my family. Yeah. It's like, yeah. if you actually showed hacking, it's like somebody sitting there in a basement or whatever for like 18 months, like just trying to find a whole bunch of like crappy software. It's like very anticlimactic. You've seen the Tracer T YouTube, right? Is it good? Anna knows. Leaf, have you seen it? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, it's it's epic. The, the only downside is it like the person running it is from my hometown. So it really makes me disappointed, but <laughs> he, it's all, it's all about like, if you just Google tracer T like, or, or trace route command, um, he's running a trace route and he's, he's trying to teach you how to see everyone who's viewing Google at the time. He's like, see, if you do tracer T google.com, all these IPs <laughs> here are on Google and it's just showing him his route to Google is hilarious, but that's amazing. Yeah. Somebody should create a site where they take all of the hacking clips and then put it and you can up, upvote, downvote. So we could definitively answer this question. That's very objective. Start it, Travis. Script kitty or not. It's like the hot or not side of hacking. If the company doesn't work out, then I can just pivot straight there. I'll there you go. Sort that out. Financially viable pivot for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, it'll go great. Uh, awesome. Next, next story. So White House is going to unveil some security labeling effort based on Energy Star. So basically here, I think that we all know IoT stuff is really crappy from a security perspective. A lot of these things never update. A lot of them are just straight on the internet. And so the idea here is to build some kind of a standard where there's a, there's a grading system and you as a consumer can understand what it is you're buying. Uh, so you at least have some gauge of risk. And when you have that the idea is that you can push people to do better. So people will want to up their game. Uh, the big challenge for me is that I don't think that anybody that buys these things like cares about security. I think that, yeah, it would be promptly ignored. 
Uh, people buy probably based on cheapest device, the thing that looks good, whatever. Security would be like 15th on the list somewhere. So I think, you know, while while it kind of makes sense, um, another another thing they mentioned in the article that we'll link is there are already existing efforts going on. So White House wants to roll out a thing, but there are also groups in Europe working on this and other countries. And then NIST has something. So another question is like, why does the White House feel the need to reinvent this? I think because somebody said IoT and they thought it sounded cool. Does sound pretty cool. I'll get at that. It definitely would be nice if the standards were mostly aligned. So if you're a company selling stuff to, you know, Europe and the United States, like you can kind of just do like the same kinds of good security things and like mostly, you know, satisfy both the requirements. I I do agree that generally consumers don't really think about security, but I, I also think that if there was some label that was like, Hey, this is not good. Like people would think twice about it. Like, I think it's something that like, if it, if it, there's something there that says it's good, people probably would just be like, whatever sounds great. But, you know, I do think like a negative label, like would probably make people be like, I don't know if I like want this. Like the warning on cigarettes. Like if you bring this thing into your house, you're probably going to get hacked. Yeah. Did you see the, speaking of cigarettes, uh, I forget who it was. I think it was on Twitter. Someone plugged their vape pen into their computer and it wanted them to install uh, some Chinese HID driver. Really? Wasn't that that was Lucas? It was Snare. Oh, was it? Yeah, I just remember seeing that this week. I was like, oh, yeah, but you didn't click OK. <laughs> a, a new attack vector. Yay. I remember back when I worked at Raytheon, uh, the novel attack of like DLP bypass was uh, you could get a microcontroller, program it to be an HID device with oh. it would write out a Visual Basic script to give you a drag and drop UI and it would re- reverse it. Uh, HID the the file over to the device that which would write it to a little uh, microchip or an SD chip um, is super crazy. Like everyone thinks HID is one unidirectional and it's not. You can actually talk HID back and it bypasses any DLP. And the problem with these things, of course, is you know you bring it into your house. Now it's in your network, and then of course you can uh, command these things as giant botnets. So it doesn't take much incoming request to knock something over. If you get like. 100,000 crappy devices all sending you a request. It's pretty hard to defend against that. Not really related to that, but my favorite Raytheon story, which I think people think is funny, is I used to work with somebody who worked at Raytheon and one of his buddies got known as the vinyl record guy because you couldn't bring an iPod between buildings because the iPod had to get checked by whatever but you could bring a record player because it was not like a digital device. And so there's this guy that he worked with that would just bring a record player and headphones and like a sleeve of vinyls from office to office. And he was just like known for, for that. I was like, hilarious. Just would have never thought of that. Yeah. You can fit so much stuff in a record player. It makes no sense. Yeah. (laughs) A buddy of mine uh, patented a way to pull unclassified code out of the skip. It's it's like one of those, just a bitmap pattern essentially, but you could scan it and decode it. And basically instead of just printing out code line by line, you decode like hundreds of kilobytes of code in a single eight and a half by 11 paper. So that was pretty crazy to think about. That problem is basically intractable, like trying to prevent all of the ways that somebody might exfil data and something you're not looking at. I did some kind of steganography. Like I did studies about this in college and yeah, basically just give up. Like there's so many ways that you can exfil something that looks like nothing. It's just not a solvable problem. 
Right. All right. What's up? Uh, oh, back to me. All right. Joe Sullivan uh, was convicted for basically not for having a breach happen under him, but for trying to hide it. Uh, this is really big news in the security community because I think a lot of, you know, a lot of security practitioners feel like they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. Uh, it's, a, it's a really hard job. You know, anybody that has done security knows there's a lot of things out of your control. Um, on the other hand, uh, and I believe this is the first time that any security executive has been held really liable for, for the impact of a breach this way. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the finding was not that they had a breach or, you know, that they didn't handle the breach well, but it was just about trying to hide aspects of the breach from the FTC. Uh, but I've had definitely a ton of conversations with CISOs and other folks like that, that are now very concerned about, you know, can they do their job? I think one other part of this, right. Is, is it, is it intentionally hiding or is it bad process? Like a lot of us who've been in a lot of leadership positions and security organizations, it's like, yeah, a lot of these things happen. And then haphazardly, you're trying to manage that some researchers sending you an email, they want pay in Bitcoin. Like, how are you managing this? And like, is, is it in intentionality around sort of hiding this context or is it is it just we didn't have a process in place? And I think that the sort of legality there is like if you didn't have a process in place, you're like it's your fault. Whereas, you know, the reality might be different. And so I think I think it's there there is an interesting perspective there in in lack of structure or like how things are actually done in in bug bounty reports and, and such. There's a really fine line, yeah, with with like what is a valid bug bunny, but bug bounty. So somebody comes into your environment. And they do a hack. They weren't pre-authorized. It's not part of your program. Uh, and then they actually get data. I think we can all agree that shoveling, trying to shovel that through the bug bounty wouldn't be good. But somebody actually goes through your bug bounty and then they get customer data. They overextend what you're, they're supposed to do in your program. Like, where is the line there? Do you have to declare it as a breach? I think that opens up all kinds of tricky issues. I think it's so, probably the like amount of data, right? I think any ethical bug bounty researcher isn't going to download the world but they'll maybe get one record and say, if this is possible, or that's the, I think the desire. Uh, I don't know the details in this one, but I don't know. Did they even have a bug bounty at the time? They yeah, did, they, did. they probably did. But Yeah. Cause they paid through the hacker one platform. Yeah. But the bug bounty maxed out at some significantly lower number. And then they, they upped it to include this hundred thousand dollar payment to the. Yeah, I think that's probably where they went wrong. If they just saw a hypothetical, but like if the max was 10 K and they just paid the 10 K would it have been a scrutinized. Um, yeah, I think it, it probably also de depends on like the first email from the attacker of like, was it a ransom email or was it, Hey, I found this. It was pretty uh, ransomy. Yeah. Right. And so I think there's that line as well. Of, like it's kind of like the, the recent breach is that it's a bug bounty. When the person says, I'm a hacker, pay attention to me. This isn't a test. Fair. I don't know. I mean, I think that I, th I think most people in the security industry would probably agree that this was not like what we want bug bounty to be. Um, but I also saw a lot of commentary on like this portion of the, you know, like the, the Twitter discourse was like pretty, I think a lot of it was centered around like, you know, the payments and like all this stuff. And it was like, I felt like at least with some of the articles I read, like, I felt like that kind of didn't matter. And that was something that got a lot of focus. It really felt like the focus was, the FTC was supposed to get notified about stuff. They didn't. 
and then somebody got in trouble and it's like, maybe that person that got in trouble shouldn't have been Joe Sullivan, but this does seem like something that the FTC should have been notified about. And I feel like a lot of people kind of missed that, or I felt like that was kind of missing from a lot of the Twitter discourse. Like, I don't know that it really mattered that this ended up like going through bug bounty. It really felt like if, if they weren't, if they didn't have a responsibility to tell the FTC about this, then it probably wouldn't have really mattered. And that was the part that somebody got, you know, hit for. And it's like, I don't know, from my reading, it felt like it maybe should have not have been Joe because it sounded like there was another group within Uber that was supposed to be kind of the liaison to the FTC. And like that group knew about, you know, what was happening and and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I didn't listen to like the court transcripts, but it like didn't really feel like Joe was the right person but it felt like maybe somebody should have been convicted of this. And it's like, maybe it was the, I think the legal person that got immunity. Maybe it should have been the CEO. My conspiracy theory is they gave the person immunity to try to go after the CEO through by putting pressure on Joe. Joe didn't flip on the CEO. And so they went after Joe, but I mean, like, I don't know, that's a little, that's getting a little bit into the like, speculatory area. I've read like a handful of articles, so I don't know that that's really the right, <laughs> you know, what happened, but that's my, my own conspiracy theory. I mean, well, I'm here for the hot takes and the conspiracy theories, honestly. So I think that's great, but I do also think like this, this happened in one 2016. And so with that, I think we're still working out the boundaries between like what, when, when, what, what where, where is regular regulatory boundary and when are you, um, sort of reporting on on breaches that you've asked for, like the bug bounty versus breach situation, I think is an interesting gray area in which actually in cases where reporters or like bu- bu- bug bounties have gotten access to your sensitive information, regardless of whether or not that's, you know, like you should probably report that as a breach regardless. And I think that that's, it's taken quite a lot of time to get to a point of understanding between regulatory bodies and the tools that we're using for crowdsourced security. Um, and I think that there is a lot there to be discovered. I've definitely seen cases where a bug bounty researcher pushes past the scope that they're supposed to go. And so, yeah, I wonder, I mean, even with bug bounties, are you, I think bug bounties are unquestionably good. You give some kind of an outlet to folks that can go discover problems, but are you also opening yourself up to new issues where folks like really have to stay in that line? Otherwise now you disclose more breaches than you would have. Sure. But also now based on modern regulatory sort of reasons, anybody who've extracted your PII for whatever reason, even if you've asked for it is within scope of a lot of uh, sort of laws and, and and regulations. And so in that case, you would have to have report that as a breach or an incident, regardless of whether or not you asked for it in the first place. I have a theory that the reporting of breaches is going to become so common basically in the future that nobody's going to pay attention unless it's one of these big, you know, flagpole like breaches where it's like, you know, unless the number is above a million or whatever, nobody's going to care. There is always the threshold. And I think that government funding for this isn't going to increase linearly with the number of requests or uh, or findings, to be honest. Well, you all are security leaders. Let me ask you, does this make you any more concerned about doing your job? Not really. I mean, like, I, I will see what happens in the next, like, two to five years. But, like, I don't know that we're going to see a huge flood of, like, security leaders getting prosecuted. Like this really, to me, really felt like it was something where I was like, hey, you needed to tell the FTC if there was a breach. 
you didn't do that. And so we're going to go after you for not following the guidance that we gave you. It didn't feel like it was like, Hey, you had a breach. We're going to arrest you. Like I, it really felt like if they had told the FTC that I don't think there would be somebody getting prosecuted right now, but I mean, I would love to be right about that, but who knows what will happen. I don't know. I think to me, it's, it's about like documenting process and making sure that we have good structure to handle all these types of issues. But at the same time, it is a precedent in that it is a person in this job getting somewhat personally prosecuted for a decision that is frankly, quite clearly a company decision. Uh, And it's a little bit confusing or like at least from my my purview again why travis the other travis the the ceo of of uber at the time was not included in the uh in the outcome i mean at all but then there is i mean i mean there is a there is a lot of different complexities i think of this issue i do think it's going to probably have some people reporting things that probably would have never been reported before just of an abundance of caution potentially but at the end of the day like anna said you know You've got the process, as long as you're following the process and doing the the right thing, ultimately shouldn't be an issue. And like we said, it's it's the fact that they just didn't tell the FTC that is the sticking point, I think. I think it does make the CISO job a little less uh, interesting for a lot of folks. I mean, it already was with some precedent in other cases where it isn't particularly by regulation or law, but it has started to become a little bit like you're the... You're, you're the one who, yeah, you're the scapegoat always. And so now you're not just the scapegoat for anything the company doesn't decide to do when you advise them on doing security better. There is also a personal liability and responsibility to the law, which I think makes that a little less interesting for a lot of people. I wonder if we'll start to see like CISOs asking for some sort of like agreement for the company to like cover legal fees or something like that as part of like, if you were to be in a situation similar to this, like the expectation that your employer at the time, like covers the legal fees for you or something like that. My wife works in healthcare and she's not a leader, but she carries an umbrella, a million dollar policy just against anything that somebody might sue her with. I think that's common in medical. I wonder if we'll see more of that in security too. But aren't you also like there, I think that there is also like, shouldn't you be somewhat personally liable for the decisions that you make or the the changes that you are unable or incapable of driving within the organization? That's interesting. Yeah. Cause normally if you, if you don't do well in a, in a job, like the max is you usually get fired unless it's fraud or something like that. And then you can be held criminally liable. And how many years should the company continue to potentially pay for your future legal fines if you didn't? It's a good question. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, I've worked in security a long time and I've never received any kind of training about when do you have to disclose anything? I think, you know, probably all of us have been in a position where there was like some kind of a gray area. And I definitely was never like directly instructed about how to handle those things. I wonder if we'll need to do more of that. All right, let's move on. Anna, you're up. Yeah, let's continue talking about Uber, but in a different way, right? (laughs) Um, And I think this is a story as old as time, unfortunately. So a contractor gets social engineered. They give out their credentials to this uh, very ambitious young person, potentially, um, leading to a series of unfortunate events involving the attacker discovering hard-coded credentials, allowing them to escalate their privileges, and ultimately owning most of Uber's internal access management infrastructure. Um, there is a lot of parts to this, right? It's contractor access, it's hard-coded credentials, it's MFA exhaustion, a lot of things that 
we should have been solving systematically for a long period of time. But like, let's start with maybe like hard coded creds. Like, do you even know where all of your secrets are? No way. Is anybody surprised that this happened? I mean, nothing about Uber, but just like when when you heard about this particular attack and how it happened, did this seem like unusual or like, oh, like something about Uber like led this ha- to happen? I mean, for me, I've, I've worked in big companies and this could probably happen in any of them. Yeah. I feel like I'm like rarely surprised by security news anymore. Like, <laughs> and like, if you just like hear about something, you're like, yeah, I could see how that happened. Like, and not to, and that's not even necessarily like poorly reflected on like any of these companies. It's just like, I don't know. I've been in the industry for a decade and I've just seen a lot of news. And at this point I'm just like, yeah, I could see how that happened. Oh, <laughs> I man. do. I do want to know what the attacker felt like because you just breached a, you know, pretty big company that like, I think they do have like some very talented security people. Like I've met people from, from Uber and like, they seem smart and seem like they're working on the right stuff. Could you imagine getting into their Slack and everyone just memes on you? You're like, (laughs) I just hacked you. And it's like, the employees are just making fun of you. I would just be so confused at that point. There was a message that I uh, LOL'd to, which was actually somebody was like, Hey, I think the team working on the response would appreciate it. If you would do less memes right now, (laughs) kind of a funny thing to say during an incident. One of the, okay. So there was one surprising thing about this. Uh, I first saw this on Instagram of all places. I have never heard about a breach first on Instagram. And it was because an account was posting screenshots of the attacker getting memed. And I was like, is this real? Like, I honestly just did not know. And so I went to Twitter and then saw some other stuff. And I was like, okay, this seems real. But like, at first I was like, this honestly might just be fake. Now I'm just waiting for a security vendor who's like, I can natively connect to Instagram stories to like get your threat intelligence. in place. That's not my preferred way to learn about work stuff, but I just thought it was funny that, you know, I saw some screenshots on some Instagram account and was like, wow, Uber might've gotten hacked. I bet Meta celebrated that as a win where it was like, yeah, it was awesome. Not TikTok. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'll say the other surprising thing was that a 17 year old knew like that kind of attack flow. They knew like what these internal systems were enough that they actually wanted to go for those things. Like that's usually stuff you have to learn over, you know, many years on the job is like, what is psychotic and why do I care about that? And knowing that kind of attack vector. Were you not a child prodigy? Uh, no, apparently not. Isn't that the only way into security? I had a good childhood where I hadn't heard of psychotic until I was like very many years into the industry. <laughs> I would definitely be way better at red teaming now than I was when I was doing security consulting, just because I've like seen a bunch of stuff and like know how way more things work than then. So yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think it is shows like some pretty impressive skill for somebody who's so young. That's like probably never worked at a company full-time that just like was able to work their way through like the way that they did. Can you imagine like if you were growing up right now though, like when I was that person's age, I was still on AOL. Like <laughs> I had aim, aim username. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was like the, the information wasn't there. Right. I think back to like even the curriculum in school, like we didn't have robotics classes or, you know, Metasploit wasn't a thing. Cali wasn't, or Backtrack at the time. It wasn't. Yeah, Backtrack. It's just like, if I was a 16, 17 year old person right now, like I'd just be, I think back then we were building punters. You'd be addicted to TikTok. Like, 
Yeah, I'd be addicted to TikTok. That's right. I'd be kicking people off TikTok instead of AOL. Yeah, back then it was a uh, back orifice where you can you can make your buddy's CD-ROM eject and yep. close again. I remember that. We were writing. I, I I used to write viruses back and forth to my buddy. That's how we'd mess with each other. And we'd purposely install them. It wasn't like we tricked each other. Like, hey, run this one, see what it does. The good old days. So yeah, I mean, so I guess nobody's really surprised that a big company could have a problem like this. I mean, the the issue is there's just like so much stuff. There's so much complexity in an environment. I think uh, I think it was tailored access operations, the NSA hacking group. It used to be called that, and they said, you know, the way they operate is they'll go into your company, they'll just observe, and they'll they'll know how everything works better than you know. So what they're building is all that organizational knowledge, and it's just so freaking hard to get that stuff unless you work in a company. I was pretty impressed that the 17-year-old attacker just was able to like navigate their way through the attack surface that way. Responding to this stuff is so hard too, because it's like once the attacker is in your Slack or in your identity provider, you're like, how do we even communicate in a way where they don't know what we're saying? So yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely tough. Yep. I think if you asked me last year, it surprised me, but with Flapsys and EA and like the, all the purchase access of the last year, it's just, it's when, when is your company next? Yeah. And I think a lot of these things, I feel like it's a pattern, right? Like the contractor access thing feels like it's a theme, the way that they were social engineered feels like a theme, like all of these things just keep recurring. So maybe, maybe someone should solve this problem. Social engineering is unsolvable. Like that's always going to be a thing. So, I mean, you know, a lot of red teams just like, let's assume that we've social engineered you and like get to the interesting stuff. Cause yeah, social engineering, not preventable. I think, you know, phishing prevention. I was at a company where the, we did phishing prevention like heavily for a year. And the amount of people that were fished at the beginning was 35%. And at the end it was 20%. So, you know, still like a fifth of people are going to get fished. It's not really like a, a solvable thing. Sure, but I don't think that we should say social engineering should be solved because it's like saying cybersecurity should be solved. And we all know full spectrum cyber is the only way to do it. Um, But I think if we break it down into some of these components, maybe some of these things can be fixed. Like the MFA exhaustion thing feels like maybe you could put some features in place to limit the exposure. But I don't know. That part was interesting. They basically just spammed uh, MFA push like over and over and over again until they wore the person down and then and then called and said hey it's me at the it help desk if you want this to stop then just approve it and they're like fine i think it was like late at night or something maybe that was another story but yeah just oh there's this yeah yeah late at night like yeah please stop giving me mfa push i mean i think like the biggest way to solve this and it's like you're not going to get a full solve but like the biggest barrier here is like doing something that's like web authn based where it's just you're you're making your identity provider significantly less fishable and then you like try to get everything behind your idp and like that's not going to completely solve it but it's going to get you a lot of the way there i, I think there's a pretty good blog by uh, our friend evan johnson from cloudflare about their journey on this and i know evan spoke at a couple conferences recently um, i also saw panther labs published uh a blog on this as well. It's definitely harder than the Twitter armchair security quarterbacks, which have you believe like rolling out something like this across a big company. Like there's tons of random stuff. It's like, maybe it's a vendor's mobile app or maybe it's a VPN or like, 
you know, maybe it's some dev tool that like somebody built. It's like, there's a lot of things that you need to test and like, make sure are going to be compatible with web often. But I do think that like everything that you can move towards that is good. Like, even if you don't get a hundred percent coverage, like every app you can get behind this is like one less thing that you, you have to worry about. I will say one way that this could have been a lot better is if the credit that they found didn't end up being the like admin cred to the the secret server. I mean, that, that in itself was just so freaking bad. I think, you know, one, maybe like easy win is make these things like really hard to actually provision. Uh, you know, whoever it was, I assume that they were just trying to get something working and they're like, all right, fine, we'll figure out the privileges later. But, you know, we've all seen that story play out, but when it's your secret server, it should be really hard to do that. Yeah. That's one area where I actually give the GitHub API a lot of credit. Cause I feel like there is this tendency to be like, I'm going to try to do the right thing. And then you run into a permission error and you're like, I didn't give it the right thing. I don't know what the right thing is. I'm going to do admin and just like, you know, I'm going to get my stuff working. I got to give the GitHub API a lot of credit because they will tell you like what scope you need, which I think is pretty cool and does, you know, goes a long way to having developers actually like do the right thing. Cause it's like, okay, I didn't get it right, but you know, it told me what I needed to add to the little like personal access token to like make this thing actually work. I mean, that's why buckets are public, right? Is couldn't get it to work, so I just made it on the internet. Yeah, or the or file has topics or whatever. Seven seven seven. Yeah, like all kinds of flavors of this. Yep. Yeah, I I mean I'll I'll shill the the repo kit approach, which is I uh, anytime that permissions are actually being exercised, if you can capture that data and then suggest back like yeah, you know this thing has been using your admin cred, but it really only uses like these two permissions, and then just su- suggest back why don't you scope it down to this. I think anytime authorization checks are happening, if we can capture that data and send it back to people, it would be really useful. It would also be useful if we did it for them instead of telling them to do it. You yep. found that most users, even if they get that context, speaking of RepoKid, actually doesn't take the action. Uh, so, and I know someone is going to be talking about, I don't know, insights and a dashboard full of problems. So maybe like that's a future looking, I'm not going to plug your talk, Travis. It's done. I did it on Wednesday. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Basically just take the action. So opt in, opt out versus opt in is a very powerful thing. Uh, they've studied all kinds of things from like organ donation to um, generic prescriptions. And basically if you ask people, hey, we're going to do this thing for you, it's good. And you need to opt out. Most people don't do it. I think in the organ donation example, it was like 15% versus 90% or something like that. So just extremely powerful concept. If there's something good for somebody and you still want to give them the option because it'll make them feel good, take the right action and then say, jump through all these hoops if you want to do something else. When's your talk, Anna? November 14th. I was coming right up. It's a great day. It's the best day in the world. Is it the day that you get to go on your honeymoon? No, that's actually the day after that day, but it's... It's the day I turned yet another year older. Oh, happy 45. birthday. Thank you. Do what, Travis? 45. Oh, yeah. Yep. You <laughs> That's how old I am. Look good for my age, right? You Very. Look What's your skincare routine? Uh, Dermalogica Active Moist. Love it. All right, Will, you're up. <laughs> All right. Uh, not to bring another Uber story in, but Drizzly, an Uber company, uh, getting hit with some FTC sanctions. Uh, I love Uber. So we're not picking on Uber, but this one's interesting because I think it's something that uh, everyone's faced at one point and another where at some point, someone at your company's pushed credentials to GitHub publicly. 
they've been found by someone, they crypto mine, you know, hopefully you do something about it. In this case, apparently they didn't do anything to improve the story around it. And then two years later, when an employee's account was breached, so whether it's purchase access, phishing or not, they got access to GitHub. Inside of GitHub was all this information, which included how to get into the company's database. And they stole all this customer information. Well, looking into it, there was they were collecting way more data than they should have. They did nothing about improving their security posture since that uh, original finding in 2018. So when the FTC started looking there, saying that they actually didn't do what they should have been doing, and the company was collecting way too much data, and ultimately they said that's a no-no. So Drizzly now has like a restriction on what data they can collect. They've been told to delete all the data um, that's not within that scope. Uh, but I think the most interesting one, tying it back to Joel Sullivan, is the CEO is potentially going to have these, if you want to call them sanctions, put on him that follow him company to company. So if things don't happen, if the information security uh, program doesn't get built, then he could be held liable personally, not the company. Uh, and then that could potentially fall on from job to job. And so it's kind of the, you know, to honest point earlier, how, how long would a company have to pay for your legal representation, but also it's like, can you imagine being that person? Like, Oh, by the way, when I, I come with all this baggage <laughs> of the FTC, you're going to be with me for the next however many years. So I, I thought that was really interesting. It, you know, kind of the limelight of like people being held personally responsible. Everyone knows that if any sanctions are going to follow you, it should definitely follow the CISO. I mean, this is the professional scapegoat We're following the wrong person here. I didn't dig into the sanctions too much, but the the one article that I read that mentioned them did say that they must ensure that they implement a, an information security program. So if you're the CISO, I mean, that's honestly like, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Like you're going to have to do that anyway. Like they're going to hire a, a CISO, Free budget. Um, you know, um, probably my favorite thing about this was I read an FTC blog and I just thought that the title was really solid. Like if you had asked me, you know, five years ago, like how many FTC blogs do you think you'll read in your life? I probably would have said zero, but I just loved data security forecast drizzly with a 100% chance of far reaching order provisions. It's just like, whoever wrote that awesome. just like had a ton of fun. Like I got to just give them huge props for that. That is an amazing title. Um, and it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's like, I feel like the government is getting a little bit spicier and I'm honestly here for it. When I saw that, I actually double and triple checked. I was like, is this actually the FTC? Cause yeah. yeah. Am I getting FTC. fished right now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love it. I'm here for it. I think, you know, the, the memeology of government is, is perfect. Uh, they've realized that people obviously like pay more attention to that kind of stuff. And the dry sort of headline that no one cares about isn't it made me more interested in the blog. It worked. No, I was just going to say, I think one it's, it's the whole following them for, for many jobs. One, I'm, I'm curious, like if there is a limitation to that, like what's the stature of limitations to, to how, how, how long does this follow you around? But I do think like in my experience, there is a lot of people who make like really drastic systematic mistakes and then they just go find something else. And like, to me, I, I do appreciate 
you know, seeing some level of sort of personal responsibility whilst being a little cautious when I see regulatory make these decisions because the disconnect between the actual industry and what they make decisions on could be uh, problematic or like ill-informed. And so I guess the confidence in that ruling has to be very high for me to feel like, yeah, this is a good idea. That's a good point. I am generally more optimistic about more scrutiny placed on these things. I think a lot of people have taken security not very seriously for a long time. And the impact to consumers is pretty high. The impact to business is pretty low. So, you know, traditionally it's like, oh, your your brand might suffer. You might have an in- increased sales pressure for a while and not be able to close as many deals. But if you look at the stock price of companies that have had major breaches, there's almost no impact. So yeah, it's, it dips for a little bit and then it's up into the right. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm actually glad to see more pressure on the individuals responsible for this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I will put policy without enforcement is useful useless on my gravestone, uh, and so I think that this is this is a good signal in my opinion. You're a fun person, Anna. I I'm really fun <laughs> at parties. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with with um you know what you said. Like I think it's important, especially with these like. B2C companies because like individually consumers don't really care. Whereas, you know, there is like some pressure from your customers if you are a B2B company to like do a good job, but like you need somebody to collectively care on behalf of the consumer. And I think that generally speaking, like is regulation. And I love that there's a push to have less data collected. Like my phone number has been entered in so many websites that don't need my information. It's like, why do you need my phone number? It's like, you're just sending me some shit via FedEx is like FedEx will get it to me. Like they've gotten all the rest of it to me. It's like, you don't need my phone number. Don't send me a text message. Like, you know, all that stuff. So like, I I'm in favor of like this becoming something that the government tries to reduce, especially cause there's a lot of stuff too. like Drizzly, you know, it's like you opt into using Drizzly, but there's plenty of stuff that has your information where you didn't even like really give it to them. Like the consumer credit bureaus is like, I think the poster child for like, you know, they make money selling your information, but you don't really have any control over it. And you just like kind of have to be part of the system and it sucks. Or Equifax. Yeah. That's what I meant. Like Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, and then the like fourth one that nobody remembers. Right. I mean, shout out to Equifax for fixing their shit though, like ultimately, but also personal question, uh, leave. Do you add your phone number when they ask for it every time? I mean, if it's required, I'll put in like a Google voice number or whatever, but it's like, there's like millions of people that are just putting in their own phone number. I put yeah. Leaf's phone number. What? I put Leaf's phone number. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to claim your Grizzly order. <laughs> you did? So I've actually had FedEx call me and say, Hey, I can't find your house. Like, Don't you live in the middle of nowhere though? No, I live in a normal neighborhood, but oh. the numbers are kind of hard to see on the house, I guess. But mm. um, Or one time I was getting a, a very good package from across the pond and the address wasn't put in correctly. Is is put in at like 2301 instead of 23015. And so they couldn't find my house. So they called me. They're like, where do you live? And I had to tell them the actual address. And the guy's like, okay, I'm like eight blocks away. I will come that way or whatever. I'm so my... My idea that will never get implemented is I think that instead of giving all of these places your address, you should give them like an identifier. And then that identifier is something that like UPS, FedEx, like USPS, like they can all access. And then when you move, you never need to switch anything. And like maybe the identifier, they can get like your zip code or something for like shipping, 
like bean counter calculations on how much it's going to cost. But like, other than that, it's like, why do all these places even need my address? Like it's what you need is an NFT. I hear you. I definitely need more NFTs. Leaf, you should launch it. I definitely want to invest. But it's just, it'd be so hard because you'd need to get like all these like companies to like get on board with this. And it's like, you'd need to get all these websites to switch from, you know, address to leaf pin. And it just like would, I think it would be really hard, but it'd be amazing if the government was just like, Hey, USPS is going to create the, you know, optional accounts for people. And then like license that to USPS or FedEx or whatever. And like, it'd be great. Like never having to change your address. It's just like, Oh, you just give them your zip code or whatever. Like they can get the, they can reverse the zip code from the, the pin or whatever. And then you're, you just, you know, put in whatever your, your code is and you're good. I'm the worst kind of fatalistic security person. I figure all my info's out there. I don't care about it. When I launched the company, I put my home address and my home phone number on everything. I don't answer the phone anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Same. I I use, I'm just so tired of all the spam. Like I, I just like, I, I'm not like, I'm, it's, it doesn't, it goes automatically to my voicemail, but the amount of notifications on a daily basis, that is an unknown caller telling me that, you know, I need to fix my car's warranty or whatever is just ridiculous. So what I've been getting all the time is the wrong number text where it's like, oh, Hey, it's me, you know, like some, whatever random woman. And it's just like, if you actually like go down the rabbit hole of what that is, they try to make a relationship with you. And then they try to like convince you to start doing Forex trading or something like that. And I read this like horrible story of somebody that just basically like they lost all their money and they also borrowed a bunch of money from family because they thought they were chasing this dream. And so, yeah, that stuff is just, it's really sad, but the, it's really interesting that it must be that like that lucrative that people are doing it this amount. I get probably five or 10 a week. One thing that's helped me is, um, I mean, I didn't put my home phone number on a bunch of business registrations, so you might be sunk, but um, <laughs> I've signed up for delete me as well as one rep. And they're like these two services that'll go in and like send automated, like takedown requests to like all the crazy websites that, you know, harvest personal data. And it's like, I'm sure somebody could find my, my address, like, or my phone number without like too much trouble, but it at least like stops the lowest level of just like, you know, going through and like harvesting all this stuff from like the, the websites that just published it. Could that get me off the security leaders list that security leaders with budget list or whatever list we end up on that gets all the salespeople. Oh, I want to buy that. There's a security leaders with budget list. <laughs> yeah, there is. That's, I remember one time I got an email from a company and I reached out to my buddy at the company, like, how the hell did you get my email? He's like, let me go look. And then he sent me the website. He's like, we bought it here, essentially. And well, I was and like, your email was probably just Will Bankston at CapitalOne.com. But... No, th- so the best part about working <laughs> here is there's, there's more than three Williams, I think. But I was the third William. And so I don't have Will or William as my email, but other people do. And everyone sends all the vendor spam to them. And one of the guys here, bless his heart, he filters and only sends me the good stuff. It's the he best. He actually wow. filters it for you? Yeah, he'll send, like when come Black Hat and stuff, he sends me all the parties and stuff. It's That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. You need to buy that person some some nice gift or take them somewhere. That's yeah, I'm pretty sure he's a sales guy, so he's used to that. But I'm like, it's a, it's a taste of his own medicine. But... I'm definitely going to get that list somehow. 
like, Hey, Will, it's me, your buddy. I'm going to send you some like nice free, whatever. Like, yeah, let's chat. Unsolicited phone calls. Just like, Oh, it's the worst. Why do people do that? I get emails and phone calls from the same person, like within minutes of each other. I'm like, well, remember that conference we went to? It was like maybe an AWS conference or whatever. And you were scanning your badge everywhere. And I was not scanning at all, or it was the opposite way around. And like the, and the, you got all the spam and I didn't. I got all the spam. It was such Because I signed up as Travis McPeak. Ah. No, but I remember a Black Hat one year with... Will's just an identity thief. He's putting my <laughs> phone number in. He's putting in Travis's no, Travis put email. your, number, put your phone number in. Yeah. Oh. Um, I remember Black Hat one year where you and Patrick spoke. He got an extra ticket. So he, he passed his ticket to me. And so he had to register me. So he went ahead and signed me up with unlimited budget, decision maker, like oh, all the worst check boxes. You hit so I got all the spam that year. <laughs> Will Will Bankston, CEO or CEO of Netflix, unlimited budget, Pretty <laughs> loves much. security. Yeah. Yep. Loves everything. Yeah. Do you get any sweet vendor? Like, do you go to Top Golf or anything? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You didn't even get the good part. You got screwed. Nope. Last up, Leaf. Microsoft. So uh, this came out a few days ago, maybe earlier this week. Um, but there's a vendor, Sock Radar, that published a blog post um, detailing a misconfiguration that they dubbed Blue Bleed. Feels like the the bleed stuff has maybe like run its course. But um, <laughs> props to them for finding this. This was a pretty cool uh, find. Um, they found a publicly accessible Azure blob storage that had a bunch of SQL server backups. So, you know, props to Microsoft for backing up the data, but unfortunately they backed it up somewhere that was readily uh, accessible on the internet. Um, seems like a pretty easy mistake to make, but yeah, there's a lot of basic PII, email content, some attachments, definitely not the kind of stuff that you want out there. Um, it sounded like Microsoft responded pretty quickly. So kudos, uh, to them for being able to, to fix this up. Um, although it did sound like the notifications to customers maybe could have been handled better. It went through like a, you know, some sort of like lesser used like messaging center. So I feel like there's probably customers out there that were part of this that like still don't even know <laughs> that they were part of it. Um, Microsoft got some heat on Twitter for their response to Sock Radar, although I do feel like some of their response was warranted because Sock Radar did publish like a like a search tool, and I, I felt like the Microsoft advice to vendors releasing search tools did seem sensible. Is like, hey, like do some basics to like verify that this person is who they say they are. Like, try to give that person the minimal amount of information to determine like what was part of it? Like, I, I actually felt like that was kind of fair. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Definitely, definitely a tough one. This is the, uh, the hotness. If you run a security company is you just go out there and do research and then publish it on some spice, spicy blog. Uh, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, on one hand, you know, it's good education about customers on what your product can do. I think it was really impressive that they were able to at scale, go and discover public resources and then, have enough sensing of what's in there to go and find that particular one out of all of the open buckets or whatever in the world. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know. I feel like if you're a responsible researcher, then you have to work more with the person whose stuff you've discovered. And it seems like, I don't know, in this, in this case, they might not have if, uh, if, if this was like the communication about it. 
I think as a security company, if you turn like any issue into a marketing gig, like you should be fired. I'm sorry, (laughs) but this is, this is not, this is terrible judgment. It is, I have no faith in them as a company or their products. Sorry. Had you heard of Sock Radar before this? No, but I also will. Now they're on my, now they're on my shit list. There is a special list, by the way. But does that list look, does it pass down from leader to leader? Yep. It's uh, part of the coronation ceremony. <laughs> I heard a, I heard about one company that did one of these like researchy things. And then uh, their their customer was the target of it. It was basically unauthorized pen tests. And they said, hey, like we, we found this thing. If you want to work with us in the blog post, you have to renew. And that's pretty like, that's pretty dicey. That's just hostage. That, that's yeah. a crime. Yeah. 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 Get the FTC on the phone. I'm sure they'd love to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was pretty intense. Um, this one, I did see some some chatter on Twitter drawing some comparisons to a blog from a couple years ago from Microsoft that there was another DB misconfiguration. It wasn't like the same exact thing, but it was like, you know, kind of in the same realm. And um, I thought that the older notification was actually better because it gave more insight into like, Microsoft's research into the, you know, the investigation. It talked about future improvements they were going to make. It also included references to Microsoft's like resources about how customers using Azure can avoid similar misconfigurations in their own deployments, which I thought was pretty cool. Like none of that stuff was really like present in this blog post. So, um, I mean, obviously like Microsoft is a gigantic company and it's like, you're not going to expect everything to be handled the same way. But, um, I, I did think it was cool that somebody, you know, knew that this other blog existed, like linked it in some of the discussion. And like, I, I do agree with their commentary that it was like, yeah, the old one was kind of better. <laughs> the likelihood that Microsoft didn't have some scanner internally that found this thing is zero. The problem is, is these things are so hard to fix. I mean, you have you have an internal resource. It's being used for stuff. You have two options as a security team. You can either just close it down. It's going to cause an outage. Or you can go reach out to the owner, tell them like, hey, we found a thing. If you can even find the owner, nag them until they actually fix it. There's code changes in a lot of cases that are required. So it's just, it's so hard and expensive to fix these things after the scanner picks it up. Well, the ownership piece is probably the hardest, honestly. Like, this one did sound like they were able to like act pretty quickly. And like, it does seem unlikely that there was a good reason for the backups to be public, but it's like, how long would it take you to find, especially like you might even be like a newer team or a newer employee. It's like, how long is it going to take you to figure out like who owns this thing? Like that's such a difficult problem for engineering orgs and for security orgs. Calling all security vendors, please solve the ownership problem. Somebody solve it. Yeah, ownership is <laughs> super sticky. Yeah, every every single company I've ever talked to has that exact same problem. And ownership is not static. It's not like, oh, you're the owner and you're you're the owner forever. Like you leave the company, you change teams, stuff gets reorged. Honestly, hot take. I don't think it's a hard problem. I'm not here to fix it, but like I I, I do think as engineers, we tend to overcomplicate things. We want it to be so precise that instead of doing things that are okay enough, we do nothing because we're not, we want that to be the exact ownership. And we do these, like who touched the code last? Like, can we escalate this to the manager of the team? Or like, how do we get long-term sort of ownership data? Like, let's just do something instead of like 
ending up in this like perfection being the enemy of good. Totally. Yeah. Netflix has this cool system internally called Astrid and it just takes all of these signals about who might own something and just gives you an answer. It's like, yeah, this is probably the one, you know, go to them and ask and see what happens. And yeah, like a 75% answer is better than no answer for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I do think that a lot of times though, it's like these rando things that end up getting exposed. They're also the things that are in the like very nebulous ownership state, especially at like a bigger company where it's like stuff just gets forgotten. I think really the root of a lot of the like ownership stuff and like, you know, not to sound like too old man, but like, I really think it comes down to like a lack of org org change control. And it's like teams split, they get combined, you know, one ceases to exist. And it's like, you really need some part of that process to be like, Hey, what did that team own? Like whoever is the manager above that team, like you need to make some decisions around like where this stuff goes. And like, I think that's really the way that you kind of solve the like long-term ownership problem. But obviously that's like not work that anybody, myself included, really wants to do. Um, especially if like stuff is changing regularly at your company. Like I totally get why that doesn't happen, but. It's a hard and sticky problem with a lot of stakeholders, but nobody that wants to be the the one. Yeah. It's not right. a sexy enough problem. That's right. No one gets promoted for that. All right. So, so we uh, take us out with something fun. Yeah, let's, let's do, do it. Do 30 do second it. pitches. So we will do a prompt. Uh, and what I want is the most wild outlandish possible product that you can propose for the solution. And Will, you're up first. So Will, the problem you have to solve. And the is- winner gets uh, a sponsorship for the uh, RSA emerging vendors section. Are you paying for that? No. You're you're sponsoring I'm, the I'm podcast. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Can we, can we go to TechCrunch? Yeah. Also, we'll dude, asterisk. No, 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 no. We got to go. We're coming up with the most ridiculous ideas possible. We need to go big. We're going to RSA. Love it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. With well, yeah. We'll do a, a giant booth and everything. Asterisk. All right. Will, you're up first. Here's the problem I need you to solve for me. All right. Uh, everybody knows that this is really hard in security. Uh, it's one of the intractable problems, but I feel like you're going to be the one to solve it. How do you offboard users? Kick them out. Done. Drop the mic. <laughs> Drop the mic. You're, you're out. You're fired. Uh, see, offboarding users. So if I was creating a company around offboarding users, I'd call it force reduction. And my whole theme <laughs> would be around Star Wars. And I, if you buy force reduction, we will turn every person of your security team into a Jedi. And you will have the power of the force to ensure that every person that leaves the company changes their role, goes off call, gets offboarded automatically, the power of the force from the systems that they don't need access to. And our, our selling pitch closing line is force reduction, may the force be with you. And that's all you need, man. With the power of the force, everything, your problems are solved. First, cu- first customer, Disney. Take my money. <laughs> I'm not allowed to comment on the Disney comment. (laughs) All right, I'll do something. So building a culture of security. I think this is all something that we've been trying to do in security for a while. But the problem is, is that we're not really like pushing it hard enough. So when you spend maybe what, an hour or two doing your mandatory training in a year, you're not really thinking about security. 
So what you need to do actually is you need to like take people, go and tap them on the shoulder and pull them into a room and make them hostage and do meetings for at least two days a week. So this is what it's really going to take to make you care about security. You go in and you say basically like the CISO risk, you're the scapegoat now. You're the person that's going to take the fall for this. We're going to give you like a full education, you know, basically put you through like decades worth of security training in a very short period of time, but it's going to be two days every week. And there's going to be basically like sanctions for anything you don't do right. And anything that you do do right, you're going to get like a little congratulatory thing. And then we'll move on. So we're just going to, we're just going to ratchet it up. We're not trying hard enough. We're not, uh, we're not pushing on people. I think this is what's missing from security culture. I cannot wait to go to a resource lead team offsite. It's going to be so I just good. feel like you would just plan <laughs> such a fun offsite that everyone just is thrilled to be there. Don't yeah. you love the inspirational leadership? Yeah. You just seem like somebody I'd love to work for uh, based on that idea alone. The beatings will stop sign when the morale improves. Yeah. Who needs uh, remote work when I could be forced into a room with Travis for two days? And this is cost, the way it's going to work. Yeah. Cost of just a service. I like yeah. it. Yeah. It's perfect. It's, it's, it's like solve saw, but for security. Is that it? You... I, I promise after this, you will not stop thinking about security. It might be like in a PTSD context, but you'll definitely remember it. Yeah, That's the way to deal with that. 1984, like reprogramming. It's the only way. I believe it. All right, Anna, you're up. So here's a, here's a big problem that you are going to finally solve. Uh, a lot of people have tried this. They've never really gotten there. What I need you to do is give me a really good solution that I can invest in today for reducing AppSec defects in code. Finally. I mean, come on. Are you tired of fixing JavaScript vulnerabilities? Does your marketing team want to use like an old unpatched CMS from like the early 2000s? Always. Well, wait no Technology more. Technology cyclical. Wait no more. It's scrap.pi. Scrappy. Scrappy runs on all your vulnerable applications and republish them as pure HTML, getting rid of all of your bugs and insecure code. P.S. We do not guarantee continued functionality or really any part of your code to be continuously working but it is not going to have any bugs. This actually might be investable. Well, is it compatible <laughs> so, with Netflix? Or sorry, Netscape? <laughs> of course it is compatible in Netscape, my dear. That and all the other you know, old browsers. But it, the funny part of this is that we actually did this in an old job of mine where like our small marketing department would like use, I don't know, at the time it was like LiveJournal or whatever that they wanted to use to publish their websites. And we were just like, we're not going to... We're not going to support this. And they wanted all the functionality internally. And we were just like, we're just going to, we're just going to scrape the shit out of this and put it as, as raw HTML. And it's not going to look as good. Yes. But <laughs> That's it awesome. worked out. All right. That's take awesome. my money. I'm in. All right, Leaf, you got the last one. So big problem. I think we've all seen a ton of this. Basically, you have all of these shitty devices in your network. They're in the perimeter. You can't get them out. I'm talking about, of course, printers. These things are very vulnerable and attackers are using them all over the place to just launch crazy attacks. Solve it. Go. All right. So my first thought was um, instead of having printers on the network, we just go old school and you have to go to a specific place and you have to plug in something and then you have to print. But I didn't want to be the department and no, I'm a modern security professional. And so we need to have the printers on the network. And so instead what we're going to do is um, we're just going to assume breach and over every printer, there's going to be a hammer. And when we detect that that printer is sending 
malicious traffic, we're just going to smash it. Uh, cause printers are cheap. We'll just buy another printer and instant response. People are really expensive. So we'll just, you know, bop the printer, get another printer in there. No problem. Just print whatever you want. And once we see it sending out Nmap, we'll just smash it. VCs, if you're listening, we've got it. <laughs> yeah. This is for big solutions. It's yeah. Sponsored by HP. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give you a subscription of printers. It's just... <laughs> We'll hot swap it. Just once one gets bashed, it like goes down in an <laughs> elevator and then the next one pops out and connects to the Wi-Fi, and it's there for a few days and it gets pwned and you just bop it. I love it. I like how the bopping it also like disconnects it from the network or like disables it from doing anything. I feel like, you know, the big office printers aren't necessarily something where you could like actually smash it to make an impact. I feel like it would just continue running forever. Well, we'll have another, we'll have the premium enterprise product. Of course, that was the small business offering. The enterprise version is like a (laughs) Wiley Coyote style anvil that just completely pancakes that bad boy. (laughs) That's awesome. What's oh, funny is, uh, did you see the HP printer cartridge uh, malware injection? I got. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's nothing. It's nothing sacred. <laughs> nothing. This is why but we can't have good things. That's awesome. It's my favorite kind of security theater, though. Like the threat model. There. Like who? Why? But it's. I would do it. Perfect. You smash the printer. Yeah. All no, right. I meant the cartridges. But Investors, to be fair, printers buying a new printer is cheaper than the IR hours. Yeah, that was my whole argument. Yeah. Like, why spend the time figuring out how the printer got breached? Just buy a new one. I mean, you could, of course, just uh, just unplug it. Just make it unusable. Well, no, there's Wi-Fi, Travis. Come on. Uh, that's true. That's a good point. Fair day. Well, but then people can't print. That was my first idea. Yeah. You're, you're being a blocker, not an enabler. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm the no security person. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's a boomer. I think what <laughs> Travis needs to do is put you in a room for two days and then you're going to see printers. how, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna see how he thinks and then you'll be good. All right. This has been fun. This is a wrap. I'll see you wait, all next month. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Have you even told everyone what this is called? This is called 404, Security Not Found. Thank you all for listening <laughs> and we'll see you next month. Oh!